Beloved, what a glorious day that'll be when we will see our Savior face to face. We will certainly rejoice in our justification, but we will also stand before our King and give an account for how we have lived. So as long as the Lord has given you breath, make it your aim to please Him in how you think and speak and act and feel. Live for His glory and not your own. This afternoon, as we return to our sermon series in 1 Corinthians, we will see that Paul tells us that there is a divine assessment that awaits every believer, an assessment that will be made not according to the standards of this world, but according to the wisdom of God in Christ. So turn with me now in your copy of the Scriptures to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. Listen carefully now to the wisdom of God in the Scriptures. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself. But I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Let's pray. Father, we now come to you for help as we look to your word. Give us understanding according to your wise and holy word and deliver us from the wisdom of the world. Help us see with the eyes of faith that the wisdom of the world is folly in your sight. Teach us instead to glory in the cross of our Savior, to become fools in the eyes of the world that we might become truly wise. Fill us with your Spirit that we might labor as faithful servants for the pleasure of our Savior and our Lord. In His name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Ever been to a fancy restaurant? You know, the kind where the, the waiter brings you your food and it looks fantastic. You know, I'm talking about the way they present your meal, the, the textures, the, the colors, the smell, the size, the, the garnishes, and all the decorations that go with it. It appeals to your senses, doesn't it? Almost looks like a painting than a plate of food. And I have to admit that often I get too easily impressed with this sort of thing. I remember this one time when I, I was at a dear friend's house for dinner. I hadn't seen her and her husband for a long time, and 
So I was invited over and she made this gorgeous looking chicken dish that looked as though it had jumped off the pages of a cookbook and onto my plate. You know, I took one look at that and I began to proclaim the glories of the food that was before me. It looked so appetizing. It smelled wonderful. The presentation was exquisite. You know, I was convinced in my mind that this dish was worthy of the highest commendation and this recipe ought to receive a reward. And then I took a bite. And then I chewed cautiously, suspiciously. And I realized that I had pronounced judgment before the time. My evaluation had been premature. The dish was fantastic. It looked great, had great flavor, but some parts of the chicken were actually uncooked. You know, all those things that I had been impressed with were ultimately inconsequential because what was hidden had now come to light. As the old saying goes, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. Now, at the church in Corinth, this was the way that some people were evaluating their leaders. They were judging them on the basis of what they found impressive, what looked impressive. They were impressed with their rhetorical skills and eloquence, their reputation and influence. These men were being assessed according to the standards and the values of their cultural cookbook, the culture of Corinth. And Paul had received a report that some of these members were not only assessing and praising their leaders according to these values, but they were also divided over them and were quarreling over who was best. This was the consequence of trusting in cultural wisdom. And it led to disunity and strife and pride. And so Paul writes this letter to tell them that they were not being discerning, but foolish. They were behaving immaturely and sinning instead of trusting in the wisdom of the cross. You see, that's what these Corinthian Christians had forgotten. They had forgotten that on the cross of Jesus Christ, God had publicly judged the wisdom of this world. And this is why Christians, as spiritual people, should not look to the culture for wisdom, but to the words of the Spirit the written word of God. It is the unbeliever who rejects the wisdom of God's word and embraces cultural thinking. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Those who do not have the Spirit because they are not trusting in Christ will look at Scripture and the way of the cross as foolishness. But to believers, to us who are being saved, the way of the cross is true wisdom and true power. And so in chapter 3, Paul begins to teach his readers what God's wisdom says about Christian leaders. He teaches them how to put on the mind of Christ and think biblically and Christianly about their leaders. 
And in this text, he points out that their assessment, their judgment was wrong because their criteria was foolish, their attitude was prideful, and their timing premature. And so as we look at this text, here's what we can learn. We can learn two things. Number one, how to think rightly about leaders. How to think rightly about Christian leaders. And number two, how to think humbly about the limitations of our judgments. How to think humbly about the limitations of such judgments. But firstly, here's how Paul wants us to think about leaders in the local church. Look at verse 1. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. This is not a suggestion. This is apostolic instruction. In other words, this is the right way to think about leaders in your local church. When Paul says us, this is how you should regard us, he's referring to himself and Apollos and Cephas. The context tells you that. And he says the right way to view them is to see them as servants of Jesus Christ. The word that is translated as servants is also translated in the New Testament as guards or attendants or assistants or officers. But the important thing here is to see that the position of a servant is a subordinate one. Now, think with me. If this is true of an apostle, it is certainly true of pastors or elders. Pastors are not CEOs or celebrities. They are servants. Now, Paul has already said that to build a fan club around the personality of a leader is a tragic mistake. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 4 to 5. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. Friends, servants receive assignments from their master, and they carry them out. Unlike the public speakers in Corinth, who would dazzle their audience with flowery speeches and build up their reputation and popularity by gathering more fans, Christian leaders should not be concerned about their popularity, but they should be concerned about diligently laboring in obedience to the Word of Christ. Christian leaders are to be instruments in the hands of Christ who advances his kingdom. Friends, pastors are not celebrities. They're not celebrities whose successes are determined by their talents and performances and the will of the public, real or virtual. No, they are servants who serve the will of Christ. And remember, the will of Christ is foolish in the eyes of the world. Brothers and sisters, the way of the cross is not compatible with consumerism and celebrity culture. 
You see, celebrity culture says we, the public, get to decide how much we like what we are hearing, how much we like we are looking at. We, the public, get to make you or break you based on what impresses us today. The way of the cross says it is the word of Christ which makes zero sense to the unbelieving culture. That word of Christ, which is unacceptable to the natural person and folly to him, that word determines what we do, how we do it, where we do it, and when we do it, because we are servants of the one who said, follow me. See, your elders are servants of Christ called to serve his blood-bought bride. Our charge is the Great Commission, and we are called to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So honor your leaders. Respect them. Pray for them. Submit to them. Pay them. Care for them. Love them. But remember that they are servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, just like you are. They are not only servants of Christ, but also stewards. That's what the text says. Now, in the ancient world, a steward was not like a steward on a plane, like stewardesses and stewards. But they were more like household or estate managers. And so stewards would be either free persons or slaves. And they were responsible for overseeing the budget and the purchasing and the allocation of resources and many other things as were necessary and required. And Paul says, that's who we are. We're stewards. We're not freelance consultants. No, we belong to the church of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 3, 22. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas. Beloved pastors belong to a congregation. And they are called to be responsible for and accountable to a congregation. I can't tell you how many times certain men have emailed me or just walked into our services like freelance consultants wanting to preach or change what we do or instruct us in new doctrine. And when I ask them which church they belong to or attend, if they're members at a local church, they look at me as though I was speaking another language. No, Christian leaders are not free-floating agents. Pastors are first and foremost servants, but also stewards. They are overseers of the flock that belong to our great shepherd, Jesus Christ. Titus 1.7 says, For an overseer, as God's steward, it's talking about the elders, must be above reproach. Now, while leaders are called to oversee God's flock, notice exactly what they are called to be stewards of. Look at the text. We are to regard them as stewards of what? Of the mysteries of God. See, this phrase, the mysteries of God, refers to that which was previously unknown in the past, but has now been revealed. That's how the Bible uses the word mystery. A mystery, according to the Bible, is not like our modern-day usage of the word mystery, where we don't know what it is, and it's up to us to figure it out and to discover it. 
That's not how the Bible uses the word mystery. A mystery is that which God had previously kept hidden, but has now revealed it to us. Previously unknown, but now been revealed. In chapter 9, verse 17, Paul says that he has been entrusted with the stewardship, which is the preaching of the gospel. In Colossians 4, 3, Paul calls the gospel the mystery of Christ. And so, beloved, this phrase in this letter is a reference to the fullness of the message of Christ crucified. That's what he means by the mysteries of God. It is that secret and hidden wisdom, look at 1 Corinthians 2, 7, that secret and hidden wisdom which has now been revealed to us in words, in words taught by the Spirit of Christ. That's 1 Corinthians 2, verse 13. Now, if you're not a Christian and you're wondering, what is this message that has been revealed by God to us in words? Well, look at 1 Corinthians 1.18. 1.18. It is the word of the cross. And the word or message of the cross is that we are all sinners. God has declared this truth. He has made this judgment, this assessment of us. And he says we have rebelled against him and his word. We have rebelled against his goodness. We have said no to his wisdom and we have turned to our own. And because God is a holy judge, we stand condemned before him. And friend, this is why our wisdom and our good deeds can never save us. Can never make us right before this holy judge. But God in His great mercy made a way for us to be reconciled to Him. He entered into our sinful world in the person of His Son. Now God is able to do that because He has again revealed to us in His Word that He is a glorious triune God. He exists eternally as three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, but yet wonderfully as one God. And so God in the person of His Son comes to our sinful world and takes on human flesh. That's what He did. He lived a perfectly obedient life that we should have lived and then He died on a cross in the place of sinners, taking our judgment on Himself. That's why He died. And he did this so that whoever repents of their sins and their rebellions and puts their trust in the saving death of Jesus Christ will not be condemned, but will have their sins forgiven and restored to God as his child. Jesus died, he was buried, and on the third day he rose from the dead proving that he was God, that he could overcome death, and that the death he died, he died not for his own sin because he was sinless, but he died for our sin. Death had no claim on him, and so he rose from the dead. Friends, this is a foolish and outrageous message in the eyes of the world. But it is the wisdom of God to save foolish sinners. And so if you confess your sin, if you turn away from yourself and your self-confidence, your self-reliance, and you put your trust in Jesus alone, you will be saved. You will be saved. 
He will forgive your sins and reconcile you to Him. And Scripture says you will have eternal life. But if you reject Him on Judgment Day, you will face His holy wrath. See, this message is foolish to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Friend, this is the message that God has given us in His Word. And this is the message that Christians and Christian leaders are called to steward and proclaim. So perhaps you have met Christians before, maybe a neighbor or a friend at university, or maybe even a Christian pastor or leader. And they do not understand or proclaim or even believe this message. They do not confess that the only way to be saved is through Jesus. And they do not talk about the sinfulness of man or the cross or the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. If that's the kind of Christian you met, then you met an imposter. Because they don't understand Christianity at all. And they may not be a true Christian. You see, Christian leaders are called to be stewards of this gospel, of the word, of the whole counsel of God, which has at its center the gospel of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now, it doesn't matter what a steward looks like, or how cleverly he can speak, or how well he dresses. What is required of a steward is that he does what he's supposed to do. There is no room for creativity. Look at verse 2. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Beloved, to be faithful is to be trustworthy, to be dependable, to be true to one's charge. And in, in this case, to be consistently obedient to the word of Christ. This is why when we appoint elders, we don't look to the wisdom of the world, but we look to the character qualifications the Spirit of God has given us in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Listen to 1 Timothy 3, 2-3. An overseer, an elder, pastor, that's a Christian leader, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Or Titus 1 verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Church, these are the standards you must hold your leaders to. These are the standards you must hold your pastors to. Don't judge them by the standards of your culture. I know that some of you do. I know that because of the questions you ask when new leaders are appointed. Well, why was that person not appointed? He's old. He's been here since the church has been constituted. He has tenure. He's successful in his job. Brothers and sisters, don't judge by cultural standards. Don't be impressed with what the world would be impressed with. You know what the world is not impressed with? Love, 
joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. The world is not impressed with someone who has been discipled and is discipling others. Someone who has a biblical and theological framework for understanding both himself and the world around him. Someone who can open up his Bible and tell you what he believes and why he believes it. Someone who can tell you why he trusts it, why he loves Christ, and why he is willing to obey the word even at great cost to himself. That, brothers and sisters, is faithfulness. Faithfulness. Beloved, God has given you four pastors. One day, we will either be all gone or all dead. Make sure you appoint faithful men. Now, even though Paul is speaking about leaders, friends, there is a sense in which every Christian is called to be both a servant and a steward. You see, the remarkable thing about these character qualifications for elders in Timothy and Titus is that they are relatively unremarkable, as one author has put it apart from the requirement of being able to teach. Apart from that, these characteristics ought to be true of all believers. So Peter, in 1 Peter 4.10, calls believers to be good stewards of the grace that God has given us. Now the text says it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Well, found faithful by whom? Who is the ultimate judge of a leader's faithfulness. Well, look at verse 3. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. What does Paul mean here when he says, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you, meaning the congregation at Corinth, or by anyone else for that matter? Is Paul being arrogant? Is he saying, hey, I'm an apostle, and I'm answerable to no one, especially a messed up church like you? Well, that's not what he's saying. That would contradict everything he has said so far. In fact, it would contradict what he says in his other letters, even as an apostle with authority. He wants people to hold him up to the standard of the gospel. Galatians 1.8, but even if we, that's the apostles, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Let him be damned. Besides, Paul has already made the case in chapter 2 verse 15 that the spiritual person does what? judges all things. And by that he means, if you have the Spirit who helps you understand God's wisdom in His Word, you not only have the ability to judge, but you should regularly judge or assess everything in your life and in your church and in the world according to God's Word. You are to view reality with gospel lenses. See, what Paul means by, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you, is that their judgment of him was of least 
importance. It's a very small thing of least importance. And that should tell you that Paul is not forbidding judgment here. No, he's comparing their judgment to something else. He's comparing it to the Lord's judgment. You can see that in verse 4. You see, compared to some of the other leaders at Corinth, Paul was not impressive at all, at least by Corinthian standards. And in response to that, Paul says, do you really think that I consider your judgment of me to be definitive, to be of ultimate significance? No, it's a very small thing to be judged by you or by any human court. In other words, no human evaluation of his ministry or the effectiveness of his ministry would ultimately matter. And he says this knowing very well that they were judging him by human standards and not biblical standards, by cultural wisdom and not the wisdom of God. In fact, he says, I do not even judge myself. Ultimately, says Paul, my own evaluation of myself won't even matter. Now, this should shock us because we know that at least Paul is thinking biblically. The apostle is thinking according to the way of the cross. So why wouldn't his evaluation, the right kind of judgment, matter? And here's the reason why. Look at verse 4. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. You see, Paul was aware that these Corinthians were assessing his ministry by cultural standards. He had been weighed in the cultural scales and had been found wanting, so to speak. And so far from agreeing with them, he's disagreeing with them. He's saying, I don't judge myself because I'm not aware of anything against myself. I have assessed myself and my ministry, and as as far as I can tell, there's nothing wrong with it. But, he says, I am not thereby acquitted. Meaning, my self-awareness, my knowledge of myself, my assessment of my ministry is ultimately not the basis upon which I am vindicated. That's not what finally counts. What ultimately matters is what the Lord says. Is what the Lord says. It is the Lord Jesus who judges me. Now, again, this raises the question. If Paul is judging according to the word of Christ, and Christ will judge Paul according to his own word, what makes Paul ascribe ultimate significance to the Lord's judgment? And how does that help the Corinthians reform or change their thinking? And this brings us to our second point. As we look at this text, we learn how to think humbly about the limitations of our judgments. You see, not only were the Corinthians judging by the wrong criteria, they also had a high view of their assessment. Their criteria was wrong, but their timing was also off. Corinthian pride was the issue here. Look at verse 5. Therefore, 
do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. The word therefore tells you that this is Paul's conclusion of the matter. Your judgment is of least importance ultimately, and my judgment of myself is not what will finally vindicate me, but it is the Lord's judgment. When Jesus Christ returns, Paul is talking about the second coming. Therefore, he says, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. Don't judge wrongly and don't judge prematurely. See, Paul is reminding us of eschatology. Eschatology is the study of last things where all of redemptive history is moving. The kingdom of God has been inaugurated with the coming of Jesus, but it has not been consummated. That will happen when Jesus will return. And when he returns, he will judge his people. And here's the reason why when we judge our leaders, not only we should judge them rightly with the right criteria, but we should also recognize that there are limitations to our judgments. But friends, these are limitations that Jesus does not have, which is why His judgment is of ultimate significance. How will Jesus judge? Well, look at the text. He will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. See, here's how the wisdom of God revealed to us in the Scriptures helps us. Firstly, says Paul, judge your leaders according to the wisdom of God's Word. Think in a way that is consistent with the cross. Don't think culturally because God has judged worldly wisdom and it will come to nothing. If you think culturally, then you will build the church up with shabby materials. You will either have your mind shaped and formed by culture or shaped and formed by the gospel. You will either be discipled by your culture or you will be discipled by the word of Christ. And if you build up your mind, if you build up the church with the materials of cultural wisdom, with whatever is impressive in the eyes of the world, then remember what Paul has already said in 1 Corinthians 3.13. Do you remember that? Each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Friends, God's holy presence on that day will reveal whatever was unholy about your thinking and your behavior and your ministry in the church. If anyone's work is burned up, you will suffer loss, though you yourself will be saved, but only as through fire. 1 Corinthians 3.15 And if you are genuinely born again, and if you love the Lord Jesus, this will matter to you. It mattered to Paul. He wanted it to matter to the Corinthians, and it should matter to us, because it is the word of Christ. Secondly, when you do judge rightly, be humble and remember 
that only Jesus can render a perfect evaluation. Only Jesus can give a perfect assessment. So let your eschatology, that Jesus is going to come back and He's going to judge and He's going to look at your heart, let your eschatology inform your discernment. This is important. Because friends, sometimes your assessments can be totally off. Your pastor might be preaching the word rightly, but he might be doing it with impure motives. You can preach the word for self-glory. You can love your wife because you want more sex. You can give generously because you want people to praise you and to think well of you. You can desire to learn sound doctrine and join a healthy church because that's where all the good-looking single girls are. You can do all these things, not because you love Jesus and find great delight in the obedience of faith, but because you love yourself and you want to use God to get what you want, but you want to do it all while appearing to be godly. And the reason you do this is because you don't really care what Jesus thinks. All you care about is what people will think. You fear men and not God. Brothers, haven't we seen so many prominent Christian leaders fall and wreck their ministries because this was shown to be true of them? You know, there are times when a person's motives will be readily apparent and there are times when they won't be. And if we are not careful, we might end, we might judge wrongly just as these Corinthians were judging Paul. Paul says we need to understand that in the end, the true test of faithfulness will be the Lord Jesus' assessment. Because congregations can be deceived and leaders can deceive themselves. Just as Aji read from Jeremiah 17, verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things. Paul says, as far as I know, I'm not aware of anything against myself, but whatever you think of me, or whatever I think of myself ultimately won't matter. What Jesus thinks of me ultimately matters. Because whatever is hidden will come to light. And He will judge my motives. He will expose the purposes of my heart. Brothers and sisters, this is why eschatology matters. Because it helps you pursue holiness in the present. Knowing that Jesus will do this ought to help you overcome your fear of man and fear God instead. It doesn't matter what people think. What matters is what Jesus will say in the end. Now, if you are pursuing holiness in this congregation, whether you are an elder 
or a member, and you're thinking to yourself, you know, when I hear this, I recognize my sinful heart. I recognize that I can so easily deceive myself, and I'm probably doing so much even now with mixed motives. And so no matter how much accountability I invite and how much heart-searching I do, I am pretty sure I have a lot of hidden, self-serving, and self-seeking motives. And when Jesus comes back, He's going to bring it to light. He's going to disclose the purposes of, of my heart, and then He's going to rebuke me. That's right. When that day comes, you will all be shown to be guilty, miserable wretches. If that's you... If that's how you're thinking, brothers and sisters, take heart. Because that's not what the text says. Look at the text. Then each one will receive, not a rebuke. What does it say? Then each one will receive his commendation from God. See, the word commendation means praise. Isn't that a surprising twist? It's wonderful to hear, isn't it? And two things need to be said here. Number one, this should not cause an elder or a pastor or even a member to say, it doesn't matter how I live because I'm justified. That's not true. Paul clearly wants us to live as justified believers in light of the coming judgment. Remember 1 Corinthians 3, 12 to 14. Leaders who build with good materials on the foundation will receive a reward. But those who build with shoddy materials whose work is burned up will suffer loss. The Lord is not going to be pleased about that. That's a warning. That's a warning. On the other hand, when we live in light of the coming judgment, we should not be discouraged. We should not be discouraged that even the best of our good works will be tainted with sin. Beloved, God will be pleased with the faithfulness of His children no matter how imperfect they may be. When they live in light of the coming judgment and they are striving to please Him in every way. John Calvin wrote, that the Lord cannot fail to love and embrace the good things that He Himself works in His children through His Spirit. Jesus will commend you on the last day if you have been laboring as one who will give an account. As one who sees himself as a servant and a steward. As one who knows this, that the Lord will disclose the secrets of our hearts. And beloved, that is the only commendation that matters. It's the only commendation that matters. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 18, For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Strive for the Lord's commendation. Always examine your motives as you look to Christ and remember this, Hebrews 6, verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work 
and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints. Isn't that wonderful? So be eager and be earnest. How do you keep a check on your motives? How do you keep a check on your self-interest and your pride, your earthly ambitions? Beloved, turn your eyes on the Lord Jesus. Look full on His wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. No Christian who spends time with Jesus every day has ever said, I am growing more and more in awe of my culture and human greatness. No Christian has ever said that. Brothers and sisters, if you meditate on the cross of Jesus Christ and you study what the scriptures say about his immeasurable mercy and his forgiveness, you will be humbled and you will be eager to take your impure motives and confess them and ask the Lord for forgiveness. So turn your eyes on Jesus, go to him, ask him to reveal your hidden sins. Delight in his design for your spiritual growth, which is the local church. Invite others into your life to help examine your motives, to help examine your service and your character out of your love for Jesus and a desire to be a faithful servant. Go to Jesus. Do this. And you will find that the one who justifies you is also the one who transforms you as you gaze on his glory in his word. Let's pray. Father, you are a good and gracious God. And we pray, O oh Lord, that we would be zealous to strive for holiness together. May we make it our aim to please you from our hearts and not merely by way of eye service. Teach us to love and to serve with sincerity, to grow in discernment and in the fear of the Lord, to make right judgments, and to do it all with this assurance that you will sustain us till the very end. Make us aware of our sins. Make us aware of our limitations so that we would lean on you every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.